I feel like when I first came to faith, uh, one of my biggest obstacles to hearing the gospel was just thinking that I didn't really need saving, that it was wrong to appear as having errors in my speech or thoughts or actions of any kind. And so there's just kind of this like hardened shell that, that formed around my own heart. Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus, as every other week we walk through a few passages in light of the gospel before looking at a, but what about, part of the Bible that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. Well, Laura and Chris, my friends, it is good to see you again on these digital cubes. What has been happening in your lives since I saw you last on my screen? Chris, we'll start with you. Well, I um, bought kombucha this morning uh, for starters um, at a local coffee shop. Felt You're sad. edgy, man. You live on the, <laughs> you live life on the precipice. I, I have no problem buying kombucha, but for some reason today I felt a little pretentious. I don't know why <laughs> doing it. And I thought, am I being looked at as, is this, um, have I crossed some kind of line that actually the, the barista thought I said cappuccino, like, Oh, you mean cappuccino? Like, no, I, kombucha. <laughs> so I, I it was 10 30 in the morning or something. So were um, you wearing a turtleneck it, while you, I, I wasn't, although I did have kind of a, a zip up thing with a high collar, but oh. no, it's uh, I just like kombucha. It was cherry, sour cherry, super kind of great aftertaste. You know, I just kind of like that bubbly tea like stuff, a sour, you know, kind of taste, but so, but I did, I had this little bit of an existential moment of, am I, am I trying to say too much right now? Or am I just, am I just enjoying a drink? So, but anyway, finished it, forgot about it until now. Now I'm remembering it, but it's okay. So that was my morning, but how about, how about you guys? How are you, how are you doing? Um, well, I got to go to a concert yesterday. I went to a Newsboys concert um, last night and I was feeling very, very young going because, you know, I'm like going to a concert guys, I'm going to go, I'm going to go jam with the kids. <laughs> Your literal children? Uh, or No, yeah. no, <laughs> no, I was, no, I was just me and my mother-in-law just going together. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, awesome. we went and I quickly realized like I'm, I'm not down with the kids anymore. <laughs> Um, we were, you know, we're all sitting before the concert starts and then they start playing and then everybody stands up and I like, I had like a audible groan of like, oh, we have to stand up for this. Like, I don't want to stand up. I just want to sit down and watch them. Um, and then, yeah, at one point the drummer got like lifted up on this thing and they literally like spun him around like like tilted him and spun him. And all I could think was like how unsafe that was, <laughs> which <laughs> I don't think was like meant to be the thing. Um, and of course, like I had a cookie before I yeah. went, so I had heartburn the entire time. So I just, I'm feeling really like, like 
old today, <laughs> and like not not as young as I once was mm, going to mm. concerts. But that's okay. I'm I'm yeah. accepting when, that fact. When do you move from that's cool to that looks unsafe? That, <laughs> I, I wonder when that. Shit Where's OSHA? Where is OSHA right now? Yeah. <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know when that transition happened, but it's. Yeah. I'm definitely yeah. on this side of it. On the other so. side it's, of it, it's happened. <laughs> We don't know when it was, but it it was in the past is when yeah. it was. <laughs> right. Love it. Davis, how about you? Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, I'll pick up the concert vibe here. Um, I, I don't know. I'm on a big live music kick probably because of the pandemic. I just, I don't know. Every now and then I'm just like, I got to see some live music and, and share the desire for a seat uh, with you, Laura. I'd much rather sit down. <laughs> during live music, um, back problems and, and everything else <laughs> that go with that. But I texted some friends cause Facebook just cornered me and they were like, we, you want to see live music? Here's, here's a concert coming your way. Uh, and, and I was like, Oh, I actually would, would like to go to this one. Uh, and so texted some friends and, and nobody wanted to go with me. Um, and texted my cousin and he just, he was like, I don't know who these guys are, but I'm in. And he, he came with me. We went out to dinner before and had an awesome time. And, but the highlight for me was like, he didn't know the band and he was just like, <laughs> ride or die, baby. I'm in, let's go. Uh, which is very much his, his personality. And, and I love that about him. So yeah, I'm just ride or die. That's, that's kind of the latest <laughs> from, from me and, and my cousin, uh, shout out to, to Mike Kelly, uh, and, and the concert we enjoyed together. So, mm-hmm. well, speaking of concerts, let's talk about the Bible. Speaking uh, of ride, <laughs> ride or die. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that would have been a, a much better trend. Speaking of yeah. kombucha, uh, we're going to look at Judges 331. We got a single verse, never done before on the Red Tree Pod. One single verse for a passage today. Judges 331, mm. the one verse judge. Shammy Sham Jam. <laughs> we'll get to him in a second. Psalm 35 is going to be our psalm. Then we're going to start a new book in the New Testament, Ephesians 1, before looking at our but what about passage, which is the unfruitful fig tree, the parable in Luke 13, the barren fig tree, as some translations would put it. But we begin with the single verse judge. So let me just read you the verse and give you a little bit of context. Uh, So the, the verse is, and I quote, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. So it's not even actually good, very good English. You have a lot of <laughs> names there in, in short succession uh, that are judges. And hmm. again, just to locate ourselves, the book of Judges, it's happening right after Israel has entered the promised land through their fearless leader, Joshua. But Joshua has now died. And we're also not yet uh, having a king for Israel. This is going to be Samuel and the book of First and Second Kings when, when God is actually going to install a king for the people of Israel. But you're in this in-between, and the book of Judges is marked by this line where Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Mm. And, and during that time, all these foreign nations rise up and they oppress Israel while they're all doing what's right in their own eyes. And Israel constantly cries out to God saying, help us, deliver us. These foreign oppress, oppressing rulers are, are, are oppressing us. And then God intervenes, but he always intervenes by raising up a judge. Usually that judge is kind of a mess in and of himself or herself. 
And then they have a time of peace and quiet following that judge's deliverance before they spiral back, usually into a worse place than they were before they had gotten deliverance. And thus is the book of Judges. We've covered uh, a judge in the past on this podcast. I believe it was Gideon. Uh, But this judge in chapter 3, verse 31, comes right after Eglon and Ehud. Uh, Ehud was the judge that killed uh, the king Eglon, which I'm not going to say too much about that because we Mm. should do an episode on on them sometime in the future. Uh, But it's after Ehud that, again, Shamgar, or as we like to call him, Shammy Shamjam, uh, if, you, if you're on a kind of a first name basis or a nickname mm-hmm. basis, you can call him that. Shammy Sham Jam. Uh, <laughs> he strikes down 600 Philistines with an ox code. He too saved Israel. That's all we're given in the description of what this judge did for Israel. So friends, make sense of this for me. Why is this in the Bible? How does it bring us good news? Mm. Tell me more. Well, you... You kind of mentioned it, uh, Davis, already, but I really like the juxtaposition here with Ehud and Eglon's story. And I know we're not talking about that, but it's, you know, it's a longer, pretty epic story, you know, that in a lot of these narratives are, you know, Samson's, the Samson story is even longer. And then you have this guy, not only, you know, with, with a one verse kind of story arc, you know, but it comes after Ehud too. So it's kind of, you know, when, whenever you say that's a hard act to follow, you know, this is kind of a hard <laughs> act to follow and, but he follows it and you're kind of left with, oh, that we don't, you know, know much at all about this guy. It's just very short and succinct. And, um, and yet there's just so much there. I mean, I think all the judges on some level, warts and all, they point us ahead to the time when a new deliverer would come and deliver us from the Philistines of, uh, of our sin and, and of death. And so they, they fight for an otherwise weakened and sinful and um, bent towards rebellion people like us in Israel. And that's, you get the same story here, even though it's one verse, um, it, it, it's the same thing. And so Shamgar uh, points us to to our Savior, and um, but I, I love that juxtaposition, and I also love the simplicity. Maybe you could even say the simplicity tells you, in one sense, more because it tells you that the gospel is a short word. That it's it didn't take you know an an extra digging deep effort for Jesus to do this. You know, like he he was able to lift the heavy load of our sin without having to take a drink of Gatorade. You know, like he he just he he went in he solved our problem with one swift, ultimate kind of snapping of his fingers. And that was it. He said, it is finished on the cross. And, and there, in this story, there's no added uh, moral lesson or any kind of religious syncretism. Um, it's just a complete one-way love act. And and I think all the stories of the judges are that, but I think when you have it in one verse, it's easier to see almost because there's literally nothing else there except Israel sitting down and receiving undeservedly uh, as well. We need to mention that undeservedly by grace, uh, God working through this, this uh, ox goad wielding uh, savior figure, which uh, again is <laughs> quite, quite a picture. So um, how about you, Laura? What, what did you have? Yeah. I mean, I love the, the repetitiveness of judges, honestly, because I feel like it really encapsulates what's the, what the entire Bible does, right? It's the same story again and again and again. And it's a really like in judges, especially like it's a rough story. Um, when you're looking at it from our 
vantage point. Like we are not the good guys. <laughs> um, we are definitely in need of an intercessor often. Um, and that's kind of the story that Judges plays. And then you have this Shamgar. Um, and I love what you were saying just about the simplicity of it. Um, but I did kind of dig into like what was actually being talked about here. And if you don't know, I don't know why anybody would not know what an ox goat is, because I feel like that's pretty clear. <laughs> um, but an ox goat is basically a tool that a farmer would have used, like a long stick. It's kind of like a cattle prod, like a long stick with a pointy end to kind of move things along. Um, and so I feel like we can kind of assume that Shamgar was maybe like a farmer. And so he had this tool that he uses in his everyday life that he ended up um, defeating 600 Philistines with. Often the Philistines, I mean, really any of the enemies of the Israelites, um, but especially the Philistines kind of are this picture of God's judgment coming onto his people. And then you have this farmer using this tool of his trade, um, defeating them single-handedly, pretty, I mean, in big numbers, right? Him against 600 Philistines who probably had actual weapons. Um, and it just kind of reminded me of another guy that we're actually going to see in a couple chapters from Judges. Um, and that would be David, who was a shepherd who ended up kind of defeating the ultimate Philistine in Goliath with a tool of his trade. He defeated him with a sling. Um, and I kind of think that both of those pictures point us to Jesus, who kind of was the epitome of this farmer whose yoke is light for his people and the epitome of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to get to the one. Um, and we kind of see this kind of ultimately in Jesus. And I, I just think it's pretty cool to be able to have this one verse, which I honestly, I thought that you guys were joking when you sent me that this was what we were talking about. <laughs> like, okay, but like, what, what are we actually um, going to be talking about? <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think like the simplicity that you were talking, Chris, but also just like just the complexity of just how Jesus has loved us um, and how he's shown us that uh, through these various stories in the Bible, even when that whole story is one verse. Hmm. Oh, that's so good. And it's that old, it's that old saying, right, of the, the gospel is shallow enough where a baby can kind of wade in its waters and hmm. yet deep enough that an elephant can swim. Why is it an elephant? Is that, are they good swimmers? I've never. I, I feel like they are. Isn't that like what they think? Like, um, what's that one <laughs> thing in Scotland, the Loch Ness monster. Isn't that what oh, they thought it was? An elephant? <laughs> like, his, his, <laughs> like the trunk? Is it his trunk sticking out? Yeah. I, <laughs> Have you not we heard that? I've, I've never heard that. No. You know, the, the elephants <laughs> in Scotland. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that this the gospel is There's deep so enough many. that yeah. the elephants in Scotland, aka the Loch Ness monster, can can swim in it. I actually think if the Loch Ness monster can swim in it, that that resonates more with me than than elephants. So right, same. Yeah, yeah, you heard it here first. The gospel's <laughs> deep enough for the Loch Ness monster. Oh man, that's that's so it's super encouraging though that the that even in one verse you have the simple yet complex message. Uh, because the gospel is that it's a short word that uh, comes to us from unlikely places and changes us. It, it's a he yeah. too saved Israel message um, and his salvation is one uh, of simplicity and yet depth. Uh, I also was as, as just reading this um, 
Well, well, one more thing on the simplicity too. This is kind of a Melchizedekian type thing. And Mm. Melchizedek is a guy who gets no real estate in the Old Testament. I mean, so little, right? It's Genesis 14, Mm -hmm. Psalm 110, but they're just kind of like throwaway verses. And then the New Testament comes along and is like, oh my goodness, that guy is the biggest of deals, right? You know, like if you really understand him, you get the God, right? You're just like, wait, what? This guy gets like three verses. What are you talking about? And I, I love that uh, the the gospel kind of has that that leaning of just like it takes these simple throwaway verses and it's like, actually, this is the biggest of deals or uh, first Corinthians mm-hmm. saying like Jesus was the rock that was struck in the book of numbers. And you go back mm-hmm. and you read that and you're like, I, I didn't even read that part. Like my eyes glazed <laughs> over. Right. Uh, so I love that. I also, um, I was reading a little bit about, uh, Shammy Sham Jam's mom, a- Anath. Is that right? Oh, or how, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but some, someone was just commenting on how this was, uh, that's Shamgar's mom, by the way. Again, if you're not on a nickname basis, like me and Shammy Sham Jam, um, <laughs> His mom, I think, had a Canaanite god's name. So there's a chance that Shamgar himself was not of Israel. Hmm. Uh, so he's this Gentile judge that's raised up. And so if that's true, uh, you, you do have salvation coming from a very unlikely place. Um, and the, I mean, the whole book of Judges, I think you could say that actually about every judge, whether or not they're Jewish or Gentile. Kind of each of them is just as jacked up as the last and the, the fact that they're delivering Israel is just kind of like, wow, I, I did not expect that, which is very true of the gospel. I mean, the thing that we believe is that a man who died 2000 years ago is the greatest, most important piece of information for you to know about, believe and harbor in your heart. And it changes everything in your life. Uh, it reminds me uh, uh, that that idea of salvation coming from unlikely places. It reminds me of the movie My Idiot Brother. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but mm. so it's a great Paul Rudd movie. Basically, anything Paul Rudd touches, I think, is usually quite good. And uh, in in this movie, he plays like the title suggests, an idiot brother um, who shows up to a family that he was kind of estranged from, uh, but circumstances bring him back, and nobody really wants him around. Uh, and it's one of those movies that situations kind of move from bad to worse because some some person is involved in them. And in this case, it's Paul Rudd. Uh, but through his presence and his kind of bumbling around the demons and dark parts of the sisters in particular that he's a brother to kind of come to that. They kind of bubble to the surface because of him, which obviously perturbs them and makes them more bothered at his presence. But it's through that that they actually get healed. Uh, It's a very unlikely kind of ending of this. It's because of the idiot brother that love kind of covers a multitude of sins within this family. Uh, Even though it seems like he's just making a mess of one thing after the other, it's actually bringing about a type of salvation, a type of healing for this family that all of us actually really long for, even in our own families, uh, because at the heart of reality is we, we long to be brought back to the relationship with God that we've been estranged from. Uh, and the good news is that Jesus is our idiot brother. Is that, is that a, maybe that's too much of a jump to say the idiot brother part, but, um, <laughs> 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 uh, he's a, yeah, uh, it's, it's so a great good. movie. Yeah, it is a great movie. I, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan. All right, let's turn to Psalm 35. And if you were worried about not having enough verses, Psalm 35 comes in for the win with 28 verses. Uh, I'm not going to read all 28, but what we have here is a Psalm of David, and it is a it's an imprecatory psalm. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with the imprecatory psalms, 
they are, I think another word is, is cursing. It's actually kind of wishing ill will toward an enemy. And we have quite a few of these in the book of prayers here in, in the book of Psalms. And a lot of people wrestle with these. In fact, I, I remember when the Russia-Ukraine war kind of started, uh, somebody was pretty tongue-in-cheek about yelling at Christians to be more specific with their imprecatory psalms because there was a very famous tiger named Putin who who died <laughs> right after the war started. <laughs> and so somebody made light of that situation going, come on, guys, be more specific with your imprecatory <laughs> psalms. You killed the tiger. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, maybe before we address any specific verses within Psalm 35, uh, I'd, I'd actually love to hear from the two of you and maybe just put you on the spot a little bit. How have you thought through the presence of imprecatory Psalms and their ongoing use for the Christian? Uh, I don't know if either of you want to take that first. Well, I mean, yeah, kind of off the cuff, I think, um, you know, when, when you read these Psalms through the lens of it being like about something beyond themselves, you know, like if there's a greater enemy, because a lot of these are written by David and he had real enemies. We just talked about the Philistines actually. And Laura, you made some connections there, but if the ultimate like enemy is sin, you know, and you even see that in those old stories, you know, it's clearly like the problem there is not the Philistines. The problem is we can't stand before a holy God. I think actually first Samuel six ends that way when the Ark of the covenants, like giving tumors to people and people like look into it and die. And a bunch of Israelites die. Philistines die too. But, and then there's this, there's this question they ask, like who can stand before a holy God? You know, it's almost like the Philistines don't really matter anymore. You know, we have this bigger problem of being at odds with our creator. And so even, even you have these hints in the story. And I think in the Psalms too, that there's something more than David's like physical enemies. And sometimes his prayers make, uh, make that kind of obvious. And sometimes they don't, but if we're really kind of invited into that to pray against our ultimate enemy, not our physical ones. Um, even Paul says that the, the battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities in in the heavenlies. It's against, dark angels. Uh, it's against sin. It's against th these things that will last a lot longer than our, you know, relatively speaking kind of pithy problems, you know? And so I think then like being brought into and praying against our hard hearts, you know, and praying against, uh, the, the influence of the ultimate liar who's trying to lie about us and lie about God and lie about grace, you know, and how it's not enough. And to kind of like speak against that, I think that, you know, if we are to pray these, I think that's the, that's the way, you know, to do it. But the other layer would just be to see Jesus in these, that he, you know, he's the ultimate one praying down those kinds of imprecatory curses upon the true enemy of our souls, which is, which is sin. And he's able to kind of peel us away in that regard from our sin without crushing us. He can kind of separate us from our sin because he becomes sin uh, in our place um, without you know, as, as an advocate and as a, as a substitute. And so without crushing us, he's able to deal with, with that enemy. And so it's very whispered here, right? It's, it's sung, it's uh, prophesied about, it's pointed to, we don't have the, the clear answer yet, but we on this side of the cross have that. And so looking back, it's really important then to read these in a Christian way and not like in just a historical, you know, literal way, but like a Christian Christ centered way, I would say. Yeah, I, Definitely agree. I, I think verse like passages like these that can be tougher to swallow are just good reminders that 
Um, the gospel is not all hearts and flowers. Like there was a real problem that needed to be dealt with that was killing us. Um, it, you know, we had no chance. And I think if we gloss over these harder parts and kind of stay in the passages that speak rightly so of God's love and mercy, um, we kind of live lose the bigness of what the cross was and we lose the messiness that Jesus dipped himself into in order to save us, which I think minimizes um, the love that he feels for us. And we kind of lose some of that magnitude. Um, And it's hard because it's uncomfortable to step into passages like these. And like, you know, I'm going to just bring up Eglon again. Like it's hard to stay in these passages that aren't so rosy. Um, But I think that often is where God meets us is these rougher parts of life and these rougher parts of feelings that we have. And this kind of allows us to have those feelings and yet still be immersed in the pool of grace of God. Um, I think Job is an excellent example of this. Like he was just firing at God and God allowed it and then stepped into that with love. Um, So yeah, I think I, these passages, I think if you go at them with gospel lenses, they shouldn't be scary, but they should be comforting because you can step into it and still be assured of your salvation and God's love for you. So good. So if you even just read Psalm 35, it begins with contend Lord with those who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me, take up shield and armor, arise and come to my aid, brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me, say to me, I am your salvation. Uh, and and it goes on, tw- 25 more verses there. I, mm-hmm. I do appreciate, especially in light of the, the things you guys are describing here about how this is a, this is a Christian prayer now. Uh, and you're not praying against Amorites or Philistines or Egyptians. You, you're praying against the sin that you're experiencing on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, while we even record this, right? Like you're praying against your heart's love of being praised by people and how that's constantly contending against God being God in your life and you trying to dethrone him and become him, right? Uh, Or the ways that, man, I just, this week in particular, I was just, I was taking, I was just nursing, uh, taking things personally. I I don't know if you guys ever get caught in that spiral of just like someone says something that has nothing to do with you and you just take it right to heart and you're like, oh, why are they talking that way about me? It's like, they're not even talking about me. And yet my sin loves to take a hold of what other people are doing and saying and go, this, this is, they're against you. You know, it's like this, mm. this prayer right here allows me to go, whoa, 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 there's a force inside of me that's labeled my flesh that worships an enemy uh, that's contending against me and trying to fill my heart and my mind with all these ideas that are, that are half-baked truths. Usually they're, they're, they're distorted uh, truths that God has spoken, but Satan has just kind of twisted them a little bit. And man, I just, as, as the day is long, I feel like I'm being contended with uh, by forces of, of evil. And uh, I, I get to say then, like, like this psalmist says, uh, say to me, I am your salvation. Not say to me, Here, here's the five steps you need to get out of that pit that you've dug for yourself, nor uh, get around the right people who can speak uh, the right things to you and cut out toxic people. No, it's, it's saying the message that I need to hear today 
is that Jesus is my salvation. And in fact, Jesus prayed this prayer even when he's dying on the cross, that God was his salvation. And then according to Romans 8, it was the power of God that rose him from the grave so that now I can echo this prayer of, of onto Jesus and onto the Father through the Spirit. God, you are my salvation. Deliver me in the midst of these trials. Yeah, one other thing I'd add about this psalm, too, is that you have kind of a neat conclusion where so much of it is about David's sufferings, which, again, point us to Jesus's sufferings. And you see, you know, little kind of call-aheads to that in this psalm um, where, you, you know, even just the question in verse 17 of how long, O Lord, will you look on? Just sounds a lot like Jesus's posture on the cross and um, and some other things here, too, of course. But, like, at the very end, they have this conclusion of um, – it's almost a turn where it becomes not so much about the sufferer, but about people's responses and, and other types of people. There's this group in, 20, in verse 26 about people are gloating over my distress. Uh, may, may they be put to shame. Uh, but then in 27, may those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and gladness. And so I, I really like how that reminds us that the cross mm -hmm. divides people. It, it's in one sense, the great unifier of all kinds of different people who together with one, one voice say, I'm a sinner and I need mm -hmm. Jesus to suffer for my sins so I can be saved. So it's a great unifier, but it's also a divider. And Jesus says that in his ministry, he says, I'm kind of like a sword. I'm bringing, I'm, in one sense, I'm not bringing peace. In one sense, I'm bringing a sword. I'm dividing families and friendships because what you do with the cross it is the crux that that's that that is what it comes down to. Like, do you receive the sufferings of another uh, who has called down curses on your sin and who in love has saved you, uh, or do you say, no, I think I'm okay, you know? And do you kind of do you deride him for it? And um, I guess the final twist on that would be, again, we've all been the enemies of God, and you know. So just before we're too quick to say, hey, as Christians, we fit more in the category of verse 27. And of course we do in one sense, but before we're too quick to say that, we can say, well, we have been against our Lord's grace. We have been against his offer of, of peace and salvation. We've tried to replace it with our good works. We've tried to say, we don't need you. Um, and we've rejected him, right? And so like when when he comes in and basically says Psalm 35, Jesus does, says Psalm 35 type theology over us and over the world and his ministry, like he's also saying, you know, again, I, I've come to call enemies friends and I'm ultimately going to call a curse down on your sin, not on you. And that's the beauty and genius of the gospel and the incarnation backed up by the cross and, and how that's possible. So, so I would just add that. I love how it concludes. I love that there's a response there and there's that just that twist of how, yeah, this is actually saving people. This We need this, uh, this type of act of God. In, in the world, because what we do and produce with the works of our hands just isn't enough. Yeah, for sure. I, I, this Psalm in particular, I love the way it starts. Um, when it's talking about like coming to fight against those who fight against me and taking hold of the shield and the buckler and rise for my help, draw the spear and the javelin against my enemies. Um, I think that's kind of where the dual nature of reading the Psalms can also come in. I mean, really any biblical text, right? Where we can read it um, kind of with us, not at the center, but just kind of about us. Like, yes, I can pray this prayer that David prayer, prayed because it feels very real. And so right now, especially in my life, like verses like this really um, 
bring comfort because to imagine, you know, Jesus standing up with spear in hand um, to take on your enemies and like specifically right now, like my depression is kicking my butt. And so to have this image of Jesus standing up spear in hand, ready to take that on um, is just so life-giving and comforting. And it's comforting because then he does that by taking on the rest of the Psalm. Um, and you guys have already talked about it, um, so I don't need to go super into detail, but there's pretty clear um, kind of cursors that are trying to throw us ahead to the cross. And and so Jesus is taking this on and then he's able to defeat our enemies, um, sin and brokenness and sickness um, because of what he went through on the cross and then his death and his resurrection um, and I feel like the biblical text really wants us to make that connection. And a lot of the times it's with like themes or types, but sometimes there's even specific words that kind of pop out as you're reading it. That's directly, um, tied together somewhere in the new Testament. Um, one of those you can actually find in verse 21, um, when he's talking about all of these people who are, um, just, uh, mocking him um, and coming up against him. And he, he said, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Um, if you flip forward to Mark 15, 29, um, Jesus is on the cross and people are coming around him and mocking him. And it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Um, and I think that aha um, is meant, is put there for a reason. I think it's not coincidental. Um, I don't think when you have these specific words being used throughout the text, I don't think they are ever coincidental. Um, we've got a good God who wants us to know him. Um, and so he's going to kind of put these like highlighter words in there for us to help draw those connections. Mm. I really love that. And uh, it, it, it reminds me of uh, Tim Keller's book just on the Psalms. He wrote a devotional and he just called it the songs of Jesus because these are mm. his words before they are ours. And especially in the midst of just dark places, Again, like you're saying, Laura, to see Jesus as the one who's doing these things is actually a, a it's a bigger cure than the ways of like, well, I'm, I'm going to put myself in there first. Um, not that putting ourselves in there doesn't help. It's just, I think Jesus is a bigger help. And so that's a, that's a good word. Uh, well, let's look then at Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul wrote this while he was in prison, uh, probably in Rome, uh, like we see in Acts 28. Uh, he's also written uh, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, I believe, in the same time that he's writing Ephesians. Uh, from He had a good stay there. He was just really inspired by that prison <laughs> in Rome. <laughs> great That's bread. what it was. Yeah. Inspiration. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> just great baguettes in prison Yeah, so there. much time to relax yeah. and think yeah. and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think they had saunas in that prison in particular the, and, and ice baths. Just really gets the blood flowing. Yeah. Uh, well, let's read uh, just the first six verses to start. There's a lot here. And so I, I, I'm just going to read the six verses. It begins with Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Pause. 
this is a greeting that uh, I know as I was even reading it, my eyes glaze over because we just feel like, oh, it's a greeting. He's just like saying who he is and, and saying hi to the people. No, he's actually given us really rich, deep gospel theology, even right out of the gates with a greeting. Let me read to you verse two again. It says to God, or this is actually one B. We haven't even gotten to verse two. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this does not mean that your faithfulness is based on you. No, it's the faithful in Christ Jesus. You are becoming a holy person. The church is becoming a holy people precisely because Jesus is at work in them, making them sanctified, making them faithful, making them holy. This is just good news right out of the gates. And it, it's worth uh, being amazed by, being surprised by, being encouraged by even a greeting. All right, picking up again in verse two, no more pauses. I'll read it all the way through verse six. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Love it. Yeah. I So kind of going off what you were saying, Davis, about faithful um, I love the end of verse three, uh, where it says he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, and that's, that's also a, a gloss over verse for me, but when I actually think about it and, and say, do a podcast about it, uh, and actually have to think more about it than maybe, uh, uh, what I do on average. But like, I think that every, the phrase, every spiritual blessing to me is just so full of grace because it means there's nothing more to add that every single spiritual blessing has been given to, to me and to all of us who are in Christ. There's no rankings. There's no hierarchy. Um, that's why it links back with your commentary on the faithful word, Davis, just how this isn't written to, to the most faithful part of the Ephesian church. You know, there's no group of Ephesians that don't get to hear the letter or something because they're not faithful. Uh, so it, it puts a big qualifier on this call to each other as Christians to be faithful. Not that that's wrong. Uh, there's a place for that, but that's not what this is. This is just saying to those um, who have been given the gift of faith, you know, who are faith filled and who by God's work in them are forward looking, you know, and backward looking towards the cross, but forward looking to a better future. But every spiritual blessing. Yeah. Again, um, if that's true, then it really is finished. And I, I don't have to work anymore to get a second blessing, uh, a secondary additional outpouring of the spirit or some extra dose, you know, of what I already have in Christ. And I think, uh, but I think functionally I live that way. I think a lot of us do. We, we, we live as though the verse doesn't say every, but says most spiritual blessings, but it doesn't say most, it says every. And so I think that needs to be a huge, a huge healthy check onto our perception of what salvation really is and sanctification too. Is this the sanctification verse? I'd say absolutely. This this should speak to our view of sanctification and what the Christian journey looks like and how we think about ourselves and our life and what Jesus has done for us every single day and to just breathe it in like oxygen and then and and take one more step uh in faith. Yeah, and I I love what you said about it just just understanding that it is finished. And I think verses four through six kind of 
double down on that. And it kind of shows us that it was finished before it even began, really. Mm. Um, It's talking about how we were chosen before the foundation of the world. um, And that in love, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. I think it's very important to remember that even before Genesis 1 happened, uh, Jesus was the plan. Um, Jesus is not a backup plan. Jesus is not plan B because we broke plan A in the garden. Um, And you can see this in the story of creation in Genesis, Um, even in the way that uh, the creation was was ordered. You see this. I mean, you you have life popping up on the third day um, and then fast forward to Jesus who pops up on the third day. I think that's the theological (laughs) term. (laughs) He just just pops up. (laughs) Um, uh, but then even it's in the, the most cre- literal, the most literal <laughs> phrase, I think, is, it's in the Greek. It's the Greek, yeah. yes. A- <laughs> trust, just, just trust me. Just trust just me. Trust. Don't look it up. Just trust me. <laughs> um, but yeah, even in the creation of Adam and Eve, you know, well before Genesis 3 happened, you see this picture of, of Adam who Jesus, you know, becomes the new and better Adam being put to sleep Um, just as Jesus fell asleep on the cross, you could say. And then out from his side, Eve was taken um, from an actual part of his body. And then you have Jesus on the cross, you know, being cut open with that spear and then out pours this blood and water, which that's what forms the church. Um, I, these verses, I think it's just helpful to remember the bigness of, of the gospel, but also just how, permanent it's always been it's not an accident it's not just this thing that worked out on our behalf you know that god just kind of stumbled across like before the foundation of the world before genesis 1 1 this was the plan um our redemption through the death and resurrection uh, of jesus christ was the plan i'm so moved by uh hearing you talk about predestination laura and i Man, could you just talk for another hour? I just this is a this is one of those <laughs> topics that I feel like when I've heard about it, especially in the past and in seminary and some of these spaces, it just becomes like such a uh, breeding ground for um, I know more than you and uh, or even the phrase you guys have heard the phrase cage stage Calvinism. Uh, and what it means, basically, if you haven't heard it, is that when people really start to dig into like that, these big theological concepts like predestination, like God was actually behind choosing your salvation even before he created the world, uh, th- that type of knowledge has led some people to be really hard to be around at parties, <laughs> for example. And so that, that so much so that they actually have this phrase, cage stage, which means don't talk about this around people because you're just, you're really stuffy and you're really serious and, and hard to be around. When in reality, it, even like the way you were describing it, it, there's such a, wow, I just feel like I'm coming out of my shell as you're describing how the gospel is actually at the root of predestination. There is good news, in other words, underneath theological doctrines. And if you're not driving people to that good news while you're describing these doctrines, I don't know that you're helping people encounter God. Instead, our sin nature is going to get a hold of these things and kind of puff us up with the type of knowledge that makes us hard to be around at parties, (laughs) (laughs) which is really unfortunate because parties should be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I I think there's a difference between 
believing predestination just because it's true and believing it because it's a gospel doctrine, because it, it's like a, a subterranean undercurrent, you know, uh, of the gospel itself, just running there, feeding it, you know, informing it, um, kind of subverting it in a way, in, in a good way, kind of upholding it. Um, those are very different. I think the former one, if you look at, and you could put anything in that blank too, not just predestination, any kind of doctrine, secondary or primary. Uh, if it's just because it's true, it's almost like that leans more into like a rule-based approach. Like you, you're um, you're trying to understand the components of a passage to say that you've you figured it out and you know more than the next person, which in comparison is the antithesis of grace. And so I think that's what it ends up doing. And the irony, of course, is predestination should be the most humbling of all doctrines because it literally means you've done nothing to earn. You've been chosen before you took your first breath. Or as Paul says in Romans 9, I think that before either Jacob or Esau had done anything, uh, good or bad, there was this predestining choice that he made, you know? And so uh, that's meant to encourage, I think, mm -hmm. and to drive us back almost with a closed mouth. We stop talking about how much we know and we receive the truth of the gospel that in this in this case is kind of clothed in, in a robe called predestination, but it's that's not really the main thing. Underneath the robe is is grace. It's Jesus Himself. It's it's the gospel, and so um, there's just a very different you know in approach. I think that we need to be careful you know to not just make these little pictures on our wall or trophies or things that we compare ourselves to or or anything, but to say no, this is this is not just true. This is gospel. And, mm. and, um, I think when we take the latter approach, we actually are getting what Paul's actually intending here. He wants to make the church happy. He wants to make the church humble. He wants to make the church worshipful and thankful. These are all things that are good daily Christian rhythms, but they can't come from, you know, pride. They can't come from just sheer knowledge and, um, and arrogance, right? They have to come from, from the hand of God himself and, and from humility and from knowing it's not about us. It's the only way those things can come. So you were predestined to say that just saying, just saying there's, there, <laughs> there's some comfort in that though. I, I will, I will say that. <laughs> but Laura Rhinus is going to write a book on predestination coming out in fall of 25. You heard it here first. I'll oh, be here. I'm going to go in the style of Damgar, it's literally just going to be one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Oh, that's perfect. All right. Well, let's uh, let's end with our but what about passage. This is coming out of Luke 13. And uh, let's say it's just verses 1 to 9. Uh, but let me summarize a little bit before he gets into the parable. Uh, Jesus is being asked who is, is kind of a worst sinner. This group of people who uh, suffered under Pilate. Uh, literally, he says, these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So it was a group of people who were oppressed by Pilate. And and they're asking Jesus, did, did they do something really to deserve that? And Jesus' answer is, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
So this is the context of the parable that he's about to tell. And it's worth just noting that Jesus is saying, listen to me, karma does not run the universe. When bad things happen to people, it's not because they were worse sinners than anybody else. You you too are all the same and you need to repent or you too will perish. And then he's going to give us this, this parable. He says, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. And uh, wanted to talk about this one as about what about passage for two reasons. One of them is the context. Again, I think we're very prone to buying into a karmaic picture of the universe. That the, the, the problems and the suffering and the bad things that are happening in my life are because I did something wrong. And God is a mean kid on an, on a, up on an mm. anthill with a magnifying glass. And it's not true. Jesus is very clear of just like, listen, when bad things happen, it's not because they were worse people. There's something way bigger going on in the universe, and it's not karma, uh, despite Taylor Swift thinking karma is Travis Kelsey in Argentina. Let's be honest. That was that was a movie. It was a, it was a, it was a good line she used there. If you're if you're not sure what I'm talking about, Google it. Uh, so that's the first reason <laughs> is the context is not karma. Uh, the second reason though is this is this is a heavy passage. Jesus is saying repent or you're just like these Galileans who are going to suffer and or these people who had this tragedy of this building falling on them. Uh, and and right away in the context of that fear, we're going to misinterpret this parable and go, okay, I got to do something. I got to make sure I'm not like these people. And without even realizing it, we've already stepped back into the lane of karma. And Jesus has something some, something so much richer for us in this parable. What do you guys see that is richer than karma in Luke 13 and this parable of the unfruitful tree? Well, I think um, kind of what we saw with Shammy Shamgar, uh, we have this idea of... <laughs> An intercessor. I want a t-shirt. Shammy Sham Jam, <laughs> Shammy Sham Gar, whatever you want to call it. Shammy Sham Jam. There's been a couple of names, <laughs> I think. Yeah, it's, it's different not, every time. It's not consistent. Yeah. And none of them are right. None of them no, are correct. Not. And none of them were true. <laughs> they're all fun, though. They're all fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, you have this idea of an intercessor um, coming in on this poor tree's behalf. I think it's something to note um, that this tree was planted in this man's garden. This tree did not crawl into the garden. This tree didn't do enough good seedling works to <laughs> find itself there. Um, it was planted and it was unable to bear fruit on its own. And it's not until you have this intercessor mm. coming in that the possibility of life presents itself. Um, I think it's really interesting um, the idea, whenever whenever I see three in the Bible, right, I feel like that kind of pops out at me because you have, you know, he died three days later, he rose, rose again. You have this idea of three years of ministry with Jesus. Um, and I'm kind of like seeing pictures of this. And I was, you know, I, I am definitely a perfect theologian, so I have this all nailed down. So for we sure, oh, for man. sure, get your pen out. Why, no, why didn't I'm, you say so earlier? Man, I, I just, I would have shut up earlier and let you just take the whole thing. Like I said, one <laughs> sentence, it's all I need. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I don't even have this, I it, I just feel like I'm kind of circling around it. But even just that, that idea of three years, 
of um, life not presenting itself. Um, I think there's something to that because you have his pre-cross ministry and then you have him being um, dead for three days. And then from his death and resurrection, the possibility of our having lives comes to fruition. Um, And it's not before that. It's not, I, I think that's, that was a hard pill for me to swallow when I was kind of first seeing um, the gospel in all of the passages was just understanding that Jesus's ministry is pre-cross. Um, and it's still, even though it's Jesus, it's pointing to the cross and that the cross is kind of the epitome of his ministry to us. That's where the mm. life-saving thing happened. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that now we have this intercessor coming in and saying like, okay, it's been three years. Now let me get in there and do some damage. Let me dig up the roots. Let me put some crap in there. I mean, my my Bible says manure. Um, I think you said fertilizer, right? My, mine literally says like, I'm going to put some crap in there and let's see what happens. <laughs> um, and I think this does kind of bounce off of what we were just talking about in in Ephesians, where, like you were saying, like, we are all on equal footing. Like, this was done without us, um, for us. And so if we can just, like, I am a stagnant tree who needs Jesus to come in and wreck some things in order for me to produce fruit fruit for him. Yeah, I I would just, I'd second all that. I, I, feel like this passage to me says a lot of the same things. And if there is a surprise in it um, that we talk about sometimes at Red Tree, like, because that's where the theology pops sometimes it's in this other person, this who says, sir, this man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. Uh, To me, reading the story, it's like, who is this guy? Who's this other person who kind of comes in and sort of saves the day, right? Because this was, this is bad news for the tree. And so this other person takes on, kind of plays the role of an advocate, uh, an intercessor. This uh, sounds a lot to me like Abraham in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, where he, where he intercedes between the cities and God, you know, saying, well, what if there's 10 righteous people? What if there's five? If you remember that story, it just kind of keeps going down. And God says, I'll relent then. So there's this kind of weird interplay there. But I think the point is God has a plan for intercession. And we see this all throughout the story. And here in the parables uh, as well, the man then, I think, being a type a type of Christ who will himself suffer. I mean, he's the one digging. He's getting calluses on his hands, digging with a shovel in the ground. He's getting dirt underneath his fingernails. He's the one kind of incurring the suffering and losing his breath and uh, his tendons getting sore and his muscles and getting cramps. He's the one suffering here uh, by fertilizing this tree so that the tree might go and, and bear fruit. And that's just such a, I think, such a more beautiful hope-filled picture of life change for the Christian. I think it was Matt Ferris once who said that Christians are not law keepers, they're fruit bearers. That's it's different. And so, of course, the rub to that is we don't bear fruit though either. We can't do that. And so we need someone else. But that's the hope of the New Testament is we bear the fruit of Christ or the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 says himself, he's at work fertilizing, he's at work bearing in a way that the law couldn't. And so the tree is cursed like the fig tree was before the temple in Mark 13, uh, a different gospel, but same same idea how the, the tree which represented the temple and the old covenant system and the system of do more, work harder, bear fruit yourself, uh, ascend, go higher. 
uh, go further, get closer to God. Uh, that whole system was being cursed by Jesus. And to go back to Psalm 35, I think there's an imprecation. He was calling down a curse on that old system of not being able uh, to stay in covenant with God based on the rules and the stipulations and the commandments and us, our doing. And so beautiful thing, powerful, that a curse would be called down on something God himself said should exist for a time. But that's the story. Uh, God, God, it's his story. He's allowed to say these things should exist for a time so that something better can follow it up. So the better thing can be more beautiful on the other side of the scenic path. Um, on the other side of failure, uh, beauty stands out all the more. And that beautiful thing is the, the one who fertilizes, the one who bears the brunt for us and, um, and who allows us to bear the fruit of salvation. It's so moving. And I, I feel like when I first came to faith, uh, one of my biggest obstacles to hearing the gospel was just thinking that I didn't really need saving. I mean, I think I grew up in an environment that really breeded uh, perfection or at least a presentation of perfection, that it was wrong to appear as having errors in my speech or thoughts or actions of any kind. And so there's just kind of this like hardened shell that, that formed around my own heart of just like, no, no, I can't, I can't do wrong. And then you start to kind of believe that, that idea. And so I, I just get really moved when I read this passage of, of if we're the tree and Jesus is kind of this, this intercessor type gardener who comes in and digs all that crap up or that hard shell of performance and perfection. And I can do no wrong and I don't need help. He's breaking that up like that, that ice um, underneath there's, there's this, that, that's where our hearts are. And that's where that, that this is where he's trying to get. He's, he's breaking that up. Right. And he's replacing it though. Like Laura said with, with crap, right? Like he's, it's not an accident <laughs> that he's pouring this manure in there. And, and I think that that means, like the hard stuff of your life. Like he's actually helping you have eyes to see it, that you and I, we do, we do have wakes behind us. Like we, we've done wrong. We've turned left when we should have turned right. We've said that thing we shouldn't have said. We've thought that thought we shouldn't have thought. We've acted on that idea that we shouldn't have acted on. And part of receiving what God is doing and actually bearing fruit is looking at it in the face. Uh, but the only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you have Christ working in you and Christ being the one who's allowing you to see it. Or in the uh, words of the, the famous theologian, Abba, uh, I feel like I win when I lose. I think that's what Luke 13 is is ultimately giving us. I think it is this very, uh, that, that song, it's, it's so catchy. And, and actually, the more I, I, I hear it in light of Luke 13, the more I believe it. That as I encounter the real sucky, uphill, crappy parts of my life, there's a strange victory that comes out of that. Why? Because I'm not relying on myself. I'm hearing God say, like he says in Psalm 35, say to me, I am your salvation. And this is the best of news, full stop. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided by Dan Zeller and website support by Nolan Bauer. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, do consider dropping us a rating wherever you get your podcast to join us in giving away the always better news of God's grace. Thanks again for being with us. On Christ the Son.